Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. What do you do when all hope seems lost? Good, you're jumping ahead to the sermon. That's excellent. What do you do when the bottom falls out? When the bottom falls out of your career? You go into work one day and you learn that the promotion that you were promised, the one that you were uh, relying on for your finances and your family, that promotion went to somebody else. Went to somebody who is, doesn't really deserve it, but just knows the right people. Or what do you do when the bottom falls out of your marriage? You see a notification come through on your husband's phone and, and you see it's a girl that you don't know and you confront him about it. Turns into an argument and then he finally admits that he's been having an affair. He says he wants to get a divorce and that he doesn't love you anymore. What do you do? What do you do when the bottom falls out of your family? You're awakened in the middle of the night with a phone call informing you that your son is in the hospital from a drug overdose and isn't likely to recover. What do you do when the bottom falls out of your health? You go into the doctor's office for a routine health exam. She sees a couple things she's concerned about, sends you for some further testing, and then you learn that you have a rare and aggressive form of cancer. What do you do when the bottom falls out? When all hope seems lost, when you're faced with crippling disappointments and catastrophes? Well, today, as we enter... Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see two very different responses from two very different people when the bottom falls out for them. We're going to see how the wicked pagan king Nebuchadnezzar reacts when all hope seems lost for him, and then we're going to compare that with the godly, hope-filled Jewish teenager Daniel and how he responds when the bottom falls out. So if you remember from last week, we were introduced to Daniel and to three of his friends. Remember in the 7th century BC, Babylon was uh, the rising uh, and dominant world power. And then in 605 BC, Babylon, led by Nebuchadnezzar, uh, comes into the southern kingdom of Judah, destroys Jerusalem, and then the the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, uh, surrenders uh, Judah to Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar ends up taking about 10,000 captives back uh, to Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And he takes them back to Babylon. And out of those 10,000 captives, he selects uh, a handful of the best and brightest Jewish teens that he wants to send to his uh, three-year training academy, his Babylon University, if you will. 
So Daniel and his friends make it through. They make it through without compromising their faith. We saw last week, and they graduate at the top of their class. They're better than all their, their, uh, their peers. And Nebuchadnezzar also says that they're 10 times better than all of the wise men in all of the kingdom. So the king puts them to work in his palace. So then shortly after they get started on their new jobs, the bottom starts to fall out. First for Nebuchadnezzar. So we're going to jump into Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It's a long chapter, so we're going to try making our way through it as quick as possible. Um, also, just a, a little side note here. If you have the Bayside Chapel app, if you open that app and go to the notes section, you'll see some of the different, uh, the sermon outline on there. You could fill in some notes. But at the bottom of that uh, notes section, on today's notes, there's a little hyperlink. Um, we had started last week a new podcast where we are diving deeper into the previous Sunday's sermon. So uh, Marcus Duckworth, our tech director, is the host, and he'll be joined every week by whoever the preacher was uh, the previous Sunday, and then we're going to have a guest every week. So one of the things we want to discuss during that podcast are questions that you may have. Questions that you may have about uh, the the sermon, questions that you may have about the, the passage that was preached. So if at any point throughout this sermon you have a question, I'd encourage you to go into the notes section of the Bayside Chapel app and submit that question for, and we'll, we'll bring it up for discussion this week. All right, so Daniel, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So we're told here that Nebuchadnezzar has a series of dreams. There's plural dreams. He's been waking up night after night with some disturbing dreams that have been causing him uh, restlessness and, and angst, right? Now, now think about Nebuchadnezzar. He's conquered many nations. He's the most, he's the king of the most powerful empire that exists on the earth at that time. And he's successful in all of his earthly pursuits. But the one thing that keeps him up at night are these dreams that he's having. It fills him with dread. Now remember that the Babylonians, uh, like the Egyptians when we studied Joseph, the Babylonians believed that their gods communicated to them primarily through the vehicle of dreams. So he has this dream again and again, and he's thinking that uh, some of the gods, one of the gods are trying to communicate something to him, but he doesn't understand the dream. He doesn't understand how to interpret the dream. So he's not sure what the gods are trying to communicate to him. Fortunately, though, he's got people on his payroll for just such a thing as this. Starting in verse 2. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. So Nebuchadnezzar has all of the resources of Babylon at his disposal. He brings before him all of the experts, experts in the fields of astrology and dream interpretation and and fortune telling and divination. Verse three, and the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Now, notice that the king wants his advisors uh, to not only just tell him the interpretation, but he actually wants them to tell him the contents of the dream. He expects them to know what he dreams. See, but the uh, advisors respond that they simply can't do this, right? They can't interpret the dream unless they know what the dream is. And then after they know what the dream is, they could go to their Babylonian dream manuals and, and reference that. And that's an actual thing. They actually did have these, these dream manuals that listed uh, different interpretations 
interpretations for different images that came in dreams. We've discovered that through archaeology. Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. King Nebi ain't messing around. He's pretty serious here. Whatever it was about this dream, it clearly makes him very agitated, very angry, very scared. The dream makes the bottom fall out for him, and he responds with anger. He responds with panic. He responds with, with paranoia and fear. Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. So these wise men are in quite a predicament. Right? They can't help the king because really his request is impossible. Right? But the king isn't budging here, not one inch, because if he tells them the dream, he just thinks that they're going to come up with you know, whatever interpretation they think might please him. So the wise men speak up for the third and last time. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So Babylon, Babylon's wise men were right in that no human can tell another man his thoughts and then also interpret those same thoughts, right? Not even their powerless gods who they even admit that they have no contact with, but their arguments are not good enough for them to save their own skin. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. So Nebuchadnezzar flies into a violent rage and he orders that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And that would also include Daniel and his three friends who were wise men now after their graduation. Now, before we move on to see how uh, Daniel and his friends respond to the bottom falling out for them, uh, I want to say just something quick about the example of Nebuchadnezzar. See, understand Nebuchadnezzar is a man who does not know God. He's a man who's far from God. He's a product of his polytheistic culture that believed the gods could be managed and manipulated for man's own benefit. So he knows nothing of a personal God. He knows nothing of a gracious God, nothing of a loving God, nothing of of a sovereign God who rules over the entire cosmos. See, he understood life only through his his limited worldview, through the lens of his limited worldview, a worldview that ultimately leads to hopelessness. So when his world is rocked by this troubling dream, his only recourse was one of fear. So here's what we learn from Nebuchadnezzar. When all hope seems lost, those far from God fall down in fear. When all hope seems lost, those who are far from God 
crumble in fear. See, Nebuchadnezzar ruled the world's most powerful empire. He had virtually unlimited wealth. He had the best and brightest in his administration, and he had the world's greatest resources within reach. Yet all it took to undo him was this troubling dream that he had, one that made him crumble. See, he's fearful because he doesn't know what the dream means. He doesn't want to miss what the gods are trying to communicate with him. And he must finally realize that everything he's built, everything he's accumulated, everything he has still is not enough to get him out of this mess. So when the bottom falls out for him, he falls down in fear. So the bottom fell out for Nebuchadnezzar. His response was one of fear. And as a result of his fear, then he issued the order that all the wise men be executed. Again, that would include Daniel and his friends. So with this order, the bottom falls out for them too, for Daniel and his three friends. But Daniel's response to this crisis isn't one of fear. It's not one of panic. It's not one of hostility. His response to this seemingly hopeless situation is one of wisdom and faith. So the truth that Daniel's example reminds us of is that when all hope seems lost, those close to God rise up in faith. When all hope seems lost, those close to God rise up in faith. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So when Daniel learns that he's to be killed, he remains pretty calm, cool, and collected. See, he doesn't respond with defensiveness and anger. He doesn't start panicking, but he peacefully engages the, the executioner, the captain of the king's guard, in, in, uh, in wise and tactful uh, dialogue. And when he gets the backstory, Daniel uh, just casually responds that oh, he'll be able to reveal the dream to the king. Uh, he just needs a bit of time. You talk about rising up in faith. That's a big thing he's promising to do here. Verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. See, Daniel knew immediately what he was going to do, but he wasn't going to do it alone. He responds to the crisis with prayer. Daniel gathers his friends and the four of them get on their knees and they enter into a season, a time of fervent prayer. They pray to the God of heaven. That's a phrase that you see five times throughout this whole passage, the God of heaven, right? The only true and transcendent God, the actual God who created the sun, the moon, the stars, everything in the universe, the God of heaven who controls all of history. So when all hope seems lost, Daniel and his three friends rise up. In faith. The rest of the chapter then will show us some of the steps that we could take to rise up in faith in a seemingly hopeless situation when the bottom falls out from our lives. So here's the first step. First step is simply this respond with prayer. Respond with prayer. Think back to the last time that you were in crisis. 
Right? What was the first thing you did? What was your, your knee-jerk reaction to being in that situation? Right? Did you immediately fall on your knees in prayer? Did you quickly call up or text some friends and say, hey, get over here. We got to go into a season of prayer. Now, if you did, excellent. Really, I know that we have some real faithful prayer warriors here. If you do that, awesome. Keep doing that and keep being an example to all of those around you. The problem is most of us don't do that. Most of us don't react that quickly the way Daniel and his friends did. More times than not, our very first response to crisis isn't prayer. See, our first response to crisis is usually the unspoken thought, what can I do? Me. How can I fix this? Right? We often try to, to take a hopeless situation that's outside of our control and we try to make it better by bringing it under our control. But in the process of doing that, we forget that God is in control. So our first response is typically one of self-reliance, not God dependence. But let's commit to making prayer our first priority especially in the face of a crisis or a hopeless situation. Let's shift our thinking from believing that prayer is important to knowing that prayer is absolutely essential. I love the way one author put it. He said, almost everyone believes that prayer is important, but there's a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing it is essential. Essential means there are things that will not happen without prayer. So Daniel felt the urgency and helplessness of the situation. He knew that nothing could happen without prayer. He knew that only God himself was powerful enough to turn this whole situation around. He was so dependent on God that he didn't even think for a second about finagling for some more time. He didn't think about how he could manage his resources to make the situation better. He didn't uh, try to talk to any of his people, call in a favor, twist any arms. He didn't work any angles. The first thing he did was he prayed. Daniel chose prayer as his first response. So when we're faced with a hopeless situation, let's be people who respond first in prayer. And then after he prays, Daniel does something completely mind-blowing in this situation. He sleeps. He sleeps. He goes to sleep. Look at verse 19. It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And that's written there to mean that he was sleeping, and then the vision came to him. Then Daniel blessed the God of of heaven. So Daniel prayed, he left the matter in God's hands, and then he does what Nebuchadnezzar wasn't able to do. He goes off and gets a nice, peaceful uh, time of sleep, a good slumber. See, while Daniel was sleeping, then God reveals to him this mystery, the mystery of the king's dream. So from this, we see the second step of faith that we can take when we're faced with a crisis, with a hopeless situation. And that's simply this, to rest in God's presence. Respond with prayer and then rest in God's presence. I was reading about a gentleman by the name of Sir Winfred Grenfell, and he was a British missionary, medical missionary, uh, to uh, Newfoundland, Canada. And in 1908, he was responding to a medical emergency in one of the nearby villages. And the way he traveled was with um, some sled dogs. So due to the nature of this particular emergency, though, he had to get there pretty quick. So he tried taking uh, a shortcut over um, a a patch of ice that that was over the sea. And then a change of wind and some ice conditions left the doctor and his sled dogs floating adrift on a piece, on an island of ice, really. So nearing death... He, he was very close to dying. Winfred ended up uh, sacrificing three of the dogs 
and skinning them to make a, a coat out of their hide to keep warm so he wouldn't die. And then he hoisted a flag up, signaling that he was in distress. And then, get this, he laid down and slept. He ended up getting rescued and he ended up surviving. And then after he was rescued, someone asked him how in the world he could fall asleep in such a frightening situation. And this was his answer. He said, there was nothing to fear. I'd done all I could. Certainly I had done all that was humanly possible. The rest lay in God's hands. What then was there to be afraid of? And what a great demonstration of of robust faith in a time of crisis. See, both Dr. Winfred and Daniel lived such habitual lives of resting in God's presence, recognizing that Almost everything is outside of their control, so they refuse to give in to the fear of the unknown, and they refuse uh, to give way to those racing, anxious thoughts that probably would have kept many of us awake. See, when the bottom falls out, let's remember to respond with prayer, even praying that God would enable us to rest in his presence, knowing that he's in control through those times of worry, those times of stress, those times of anxiety, and those times of crisis. So Daniel gets a good night's sleep, and God answers Daniel's prayer. He reveals the king's dream and the mystery uh, to Daniel while he's sleeping. And next we see that Daniel wakes up and praises God. Now this praise begins in verse 20 and runs to uh, verse 23. And this is often referred to as Daniel's psalm because it's actually uh, written in, in a poetic form like many of the psalms are. Um, and it, it's a song, it's a poem that praises God's character and attributes. So starting in verse 20. Daniel gets up and then it says, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. So Daniel saying that God, you alone are the eternal one that has no beginning. You alone are the eternal one that has no end. You are the God of wisdom who alone knows how to order the world. Lord, and you are the God of great might who alone can carry out your wise orders. And then he goes on in verse 21. He says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So he's saying God alone is the one who controls every aspect of human history, all of its events, all of its people, kings, emperors, presidents, all their empires and their nations rise and fall at the discretion of God alone. Out of his wisdom, he rules and out of his grace, he grants wisdom and understanding to those who are close to him. Verse 22 Daniel goes on and he says about God, he reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So Daniel here is saying that God is the revealer of mysteries, right? His mind is the storehouse of the universe's greatest mysteries. He alone knows everything that dwells in the darkness, even the king's dream that everybody else couldn't interpret. And he alone knows what's in the darkness of the human heart. And he knows all the things that humans try to conceal and keep secret from others. All of those deep, dark, hidden, and secret things are known by God and are, and he alone possesses the light to shed the, and reveal those things to us. Verse 23 Daniel closes and says, To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. 
So Daniel closes his song of praise by expressing gratitude to God for being faithful to answer prayer and for revealing what none of the other wise men in Babylon were able to discover because of all of their powerless, non-existent gods. So here's the third step of faith that we should take when the bottom falls out. And that's simply this, rejoice with praise, respond with prayer, rest in God's presence, and then rejoice with praise. See, instead of rushing impulsively to the king, Daniel stops. He pauses to worship God. He, enter, he enters into a, a, a song. He, he, he breaks out into a worship session, right? So praise, understand praise is always in order when prayer is answered, as in Daniel's case. But not only that, praise is also always in order, even when it seems like our prayers have gone unanswered. See, the test of our spirituality doesn't lie in the fervency, uh, it doesn't lie alone in the fervency of our prayers, but also in the wholeheartedness of our worship. Praise is an antidote to anxiety. It aligns our hearts and minds with, with God's word and with God's heart, and it reminds us that he is in control and that he is just as present with us in times of hardship. So when we praise and worship God, we remember that his goodness surpasses all of our human weaknesses, all of our worries, all of our anxieties, all of our limitations. So when all hope seems lost, when the bottom falls out, let's respond with prayer. Let's rest in God's presence and let's praise him for who he is. And then after Daniel does all this, he finally goes to the king's court to deliver to the king what none of the wise men were able to deliver. Verse 24, therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. I love how humble and compassionate Daniel is here, right? He, he's a good leader. As any good leader, as any selfless Christ-like leader, he doesn't lord his leadership over all of the other wise men, right? He doesn't lord it over those, those pagan wise men saying that he's better than them, that he's got some kind of divine privilege. But all we see here is that he desires to actually save them. He doesn't want them to be executed. So Arioch brings Daniel to the king. And then a couple verses later, we read this, verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king, and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And then we'll see in a, in a moment his dream and the interpretation. But here we just have to pause for a minute and kind of be amazed at, at Daniel. See, Daniel could have used this as an opportunity for pride to boast in himself, to boast in this divine privilege that he had that the other wise men didn't. He, he, he could have tried using this to scheme and, and advance his position of leadership in uh, the, the Babylonian, uh, amongst all of their, their, their uh, politicians, but none of this was even a thought in his head, right? He, he makes it very clear to the king. He wants the king to know that he's not even the one who was able to do this, but it was the God of heaven 
Again, we see that phrase, the God of heaven, the God of heaven who revealed the dream. And Daniel wants to make sure that it's the God of heaven who receives all the credit and all the glory. So starting in verse 31, then Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar what this dream is and then its interpretation. 31, Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel finally tells the king of his dream. He reveals that it was this huge giant human statue made of various precious metals. And the precious metals kind of decrease in value as you go down this image. But they increase in strength. So it's a statue of a human made by human hands. And he contrasts this great statue with an insignificant stone of no value. See, unlike the statue, which which was made by human hands, he said the stone is not one of human origin. It's not one cut out by human hands. And it collapses the statue, and then the stone grows and grows and grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. So now you can finally start to see a little bit of why the king was getting very paranoid about this dream, right? He's in his uh, second full year of reigning. Um, the way, that's the way they counted the years. If you were wondering, Daniel went through three years uh, of training in Babylon, but it's here it says it's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's second year as king. Um, they don't count the year of ascension um, in, that, in those years. So this is his second full year um, reigning, his third year as king. Um, so he's, he has this dream. He's still a, a new king. He's about 30 years old, historians say. And if he thought then that the statue represented him, you can imagine then why he's so terrified of this stone that comes and destroys the statue and makes it uh, like dust in the wind, right? He's thinking there's another enemy that's going to be rising up to destroy me. So no wonder he insisted then on getting a trustworthy interpretation. Fortunately, though, Daniel's able to reassure the king with the interpretation. The end of verse 38, Daniel says this to him. He says, you are the head of gold to Nebuchadnezzar. Then he says, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. So Daniel um, Daniel interprets this stream for Nebuchadnezzar. So Babylon here 
is the head of gold. That's exactly what Daniel says. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. So then uh, gold is the most valuable. Nebuchadnezzar probably felt pretty good about this. And then after Babylon, a lesser kingdom is going to rule. And we know what that lesser kingdom was. Daniel's prophesying that this was uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which ends up um, rising to power in 539 BC. Then after the Medo-Persian power came uh, the kingdom of bronze, and that's identified as Greece. That was under the rule of Alexander the Great. And they came to power in 331 BC. And then after Greece, they were replaced by this kingdom of iron, which would have been Rome. Now listen, the fact that Daniel prophesied all of this is amazing. In fact, in some later chapters, he, start, he fills in some more details here about these different kingdoms. Now you can't read this and not be amazed at the, 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 the accuracy of this uh, predictive prophecy, as it would be called. Right? It really is one of the many convincing proofs that scripture truly is the word of God. Right? He prophesies this hundreds of years before it happens. But more important than understanding what these kingdoms represent is the main point of the dream and understanding that. And that point becomes crystal clear in, the, in verse 44. Daniel says this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So Babylon will be replaced by another kingdom, then another kingdom, and then another kingdom, until finally the kingdom of God comes and replaces all human kingdoms. As opposed to these fleeting kingdoms, yeah, you can praise God for that, amen? As opposed to these fleeting kingdoms of, of humans, the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. It's outside the grasp of human rulers, right? It's a kingdom that's far superior and far different from any kingdom the world has ever known. And it will stand forever and it will never be destroyed. Verse 45, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. As Daniel's way of saying, you can bet this is all going to happen just as God revealed. See, these verses, um, understand that these verses point both to the first and second coming of Jesus, right? Like the twin mountain peaks with a hidden valley in between. That's how you see a lot of Old Testament prophecy um, uh, kind of unravel. The kingdom of God was inaugurated with the first coming of Jesus. And then the kingdom of God will become fully realized at his second coming. And here we are in the valley in between his first and second coming. See, almost 600 years after Daniel prophesies all of this, interprets this dream, Jesus comes to earth. He arrives on the scene during the time of uh, the Roman rule. And I love, listen to this. This is what uh, the angel Gabriel says to Mary. This is what he announced. He said, he, Jesus, will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Jesus is born, he grows into a man, he starts his public ministry at the age of 30 years old. And then he proclaims from Mark's gospel, he says, the good news of God. And he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. 
So Jesus preaches, he performs countless miracles, and he brings the kingdom of God into the world. And Jesus eventually gets executed. Executed for his claiming to be the Messiah, and executed because he claims uh, to be uh, of equal status and dignity and worth and value of God the Father. And that was blasphemy. So he gets crucified by Roman soldiers. And those early disciples surely thought that this kingdom of God had now come to an end and been supplanted by Rome. But we know what happens three days later, don't we? (laughs) Three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead. And with his resurrection, he gives a charge to his earliest disciples that they are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then the kingdom of God begins to spread to the ends of the earth. And it's been doing that for the last 2,000 years. As Daniel prophesied, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the stone is no one other than Jesus Christ. And a day is coming when his kingdom will once and for all replace every other human kingdom for good. And if this isn't good news, that gives us incredible hope. I don't know what is. Amen. So when the bottom falls out for you, when you're facing a seamless, hopeless situation, respond to your crisis with prayer. Rest in God's presence. Rejoice with praise for who God is. And here's the fourth step of faith, simply this. Rely on God's promises. You can take it to the bank that Jesus will return just as he promised. And this glorious truth, it's this truth that gives us great hope in times of distress and times of hopelessness. That Jesus, who came in grace during his first coming, is going to return in glory for his second coming. And he's going to reign forever and ever. And when he comes in glory, he's going to gather his elect and we will glorify him and we will enjoy his greatness alongside one another forever and ever and ever. So let's refuse to be unhealthy and unhappy Christians who live on the fast food leftovers of the world's kingdoms and instead realize that we have a standing invitation to feast on the grace and promises of God. See, all of God's promises are certain and they are reliable as he is. So here's the bottom line in all of this. The bottom line is simply this. Hope can be had in hopeless days because the God of heaven reigns. Jesus is the king and he reigns over all. Even in your most hopeless and helpless situations, God is still in control. Jesus is reigning. And though you will suffer this side of glory, every single one of us will, though though you might experience the pain of broken relationships, uh, though you might experience the seeming hopelessness of the death of a child, the distress of sickness, the agony of injustice, or the torment of anxiety and depression, you can still have hope because the Jesus of heaven reigns. You can have hope. You can have hope because all of your difficulties, all of your sufferings are as temporary and as fleeting as the kingdoms of this earth. Because everything built by human hands is nothing but dust in the wind. 
See, your greatest days of pain and crisis will pale in comparison to the glorious fullness of God's kingdom that awaits followers of Jesus. Think about that future. It's a future that's void of evil, a future that's void of sin, a future that's void of pain, a future that's void of suffering. It's a future when God says in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither there will be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things that mark the kingdoms of this world will all pass away. You can have hope because the God of heaven will restore all things and make everything new. And even in the waiting... He's there for you. Even in the waiting, he doesn't let you face this life alone. He gives you his spirit to comfort you, to guide you, to protect you, to love you. He gives you his grace to sustain you. And he gives us one another. He gives us the church to support you and to encourage you. So when the bottom falls out, when all hope seems lost, rise up in faith. Respond in prayer. Rest in who God is. Rejoice in him and rely on all of his good promises, which are certain to happen. And what may feel like the most hopeless days, you can have hope because the God of heaven reigns. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful that you are our kind and loving father who reigns. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have as your children. Lord, hope that whatever it is that we experience, whatever it is that we face, we don't face alone. Lord, and nothing that we face has slipped by you without your permission. Lord, for those in here who don't know you, for those who might be in here, who, like Nebuchadnezzar, are far from you and tend to fall down in fear in times of hopelessness. Lord, I pray that even in these moments, that by your spirit, you would do a mighty work in their spirit. Lord, that you would regenerate them by your spirit. Lord, I pray that they would realize that apart from you, that we're completely cut off from the greatest source of hope, that apart from you, we're cut off from the, the greatest source of strength, the greatest source of peace, Lord, and that apart from you, we're cut off from the most precious, most meaningful, most fulfilling relationship any of us can ever have. So, Lord, in these moments, my prayer is that they turn to you. That they wouldn't go another day without knowing that they are yours and you are theirs. Lord, as your word says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God, so for those people, if there's anybody in here in these moments, I pray that they would confess that Jesus is Lord and that they'd believe that he died for their sins and was raised again to give them new life, to give them his very own life. Lord, that you've removed from them because of Jesus, the debt of sin, and that you've knighted your spirit to theirs, Lord, and we thank you for that reality that is ours in Christ. Lord, our union with Christ 
that we are so dearly loved, so dearly cherished, Lord, because when you see us, you see your son. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the lengths to which you went to redeem your lost children. We love you, Jesus, and I pray for everyone in here going through a season of difficulty. God, that you would remind them of the truths of of your word. Lord, that you would meet them in their moments of prayer. Lord, that you would enable them to get rest in the midst of the most trying times. And Lord, that they would turn, that all of us would turn in praise to you for who you are, for what you're doing, for what you will do, Lord, and that we would trust and rely on your good promises. And Lord, we look forward to that day when Jesus returns and calls us home. Lord, but until that day comes, God, we do acknowledge that Jesus reigns that he is the king seated at your right hand. Lord, in my prayer is that we'd all leave here singing and shouting and believing. All hail King Jesus. And it's in his powerful, glorious name we pray. Amen.